And just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Thanks again for joining me. Today I am sitting down with Sam Jacobs, who is the founder of Revenue Collective. Now, uh, Sam, uh, for you know, 15, 16 plus years, he's worked with a variety of companies as a senior sales executive leadership. Uh, he's helped companies scale from uh, $0 in revenue to over $300 million. He has significant uh, operational expertise, sales uh, expertise, emphasis on go-to-market strategy. Um, he's worked in a variety of SaaS and recurring revenue businesses, including uh, being a commercial operator at GLG, Livestream uh, slash Vimeo, The Muse, and uh, Behavox. Now, what he's working on is revenue. Is the Revenue Collective, which was uh, started as a hundred-member group, January 2019. Fast forward to 2020, there's over 1,400 and growing. Uh, invite only. Uh, it's an invite only global community of sales, marketing, revenue leaders. Um, he's also the host of the Sales Hacker Podcast, which has over uh, 2,500 downloads. So you know he's going to put me on the spot now. And make sure that I'm asking um, good questions and whatnot. So I appreciate you joining me. I think that what you're doing is incredible. I don't think there's a lot of people doing uh, similar types of invite only for revenue executives. So I'm curious. Um, what your background is like, how you came to what you're working on today, why it's important, and uh, and all of that. So I appreciate you sitting down. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, and uh, and I'm happy to be here. Uh, so, yeah, and just a, a few stats uh, just for the audience. Um, things are bigger than uh, than than <laughs> make you indicator, which is totally which is which is great. So Revenue Collective is actually uh, just around three thousand global members at this point. Oh, um, okay. we're, we're oh, it's okay. We're in uh, probably over a hundred cities all over the world. Uh, we we got started in New York in twenty sixteen, and I can talk all about that. Um, and uh, and then the Sales Hacker Podcast. Uh, actually gets uh, it gets about forty thousand downloads uh, a month. So um, you know, been doing that for a couple of years. But my background is I've been you know originally uh, I grew up overseas. My parents were in the foreign service for the U.S. government for the State Department, and then I came back uh, and went to college at the University of Virginia. Came out of college and undergrad in nineteen ninety nine. It was the first dot com boom, and I moved up to New York to do investment banking. Uh, wasn't really into that very much. Uh, felt a little too corporate for me, so I started a record label. That record label was not successful, and uh, I call it Exercises in Poverty and Humility. And, um, and then I came back to New York in 2003, and that was really when uh, my career as sort of what I am today began. 
And that's when I started a company as you, that you mentioned uh, called GLG, Gerson Lehman Group. And that company was about $25 million in revenue when I joined. And I basically came in at the ground floor. There weren't even job descriptions for most of the things that we were doing. But I ended up running their global customer service organization, customer success. My title was managing director of research management, but really what that meant was taking care of all of our clients and making sure that they were happy. Um, we went from about 25 million in, uh, in revenue to 300 million in revenue over the seven and a half years I was there. And that was really you know, a rocket ship. The company was incredibly profitable, uh, paid out. Uh, it was very shareholder friendly and all of the people that had options or equity were able to participate and it was great. Paid out lots of dividends and really made sure that the people that were investing in the company uh, saw a return, which was incredible. And I came out of GLG in 2010 and for the last 10 years, you know, prior to Revenue Collective was leading and kind of chief revenue officer type person for early stage companies primarily Series A and Series B companies, although, uh, you know, sort of it varies based on the company. But a couple things were happening, particularly the last 10 years. So the first thing was that, you know, as I mentioned, I worked at GLG for seven and a half years. I then worked at Axial, which is a, a venture-backed business in New York, focusing on the private equity industry for four and a half years. I then worked at Livestream for two years. I then worked at the Muse as Chief Revenue Officer for nine months, and I worked at Behavox for 10 months. And so if you're uh, plotting those points on a graph for average tenure, you can see that it went from seven and a half years to 10 months over the course of, you know, five jobs. And so that was that was an issue for me. And that was, you know, a problem, uh, both for my career. But what I realized was that it wasn't just me that this was happening to. It was happening to a lot of different people. And when we did the research, we realized that the average tenure for somebody in a sales or marketing leadership position at a high growth company is just 17 months at this point. So on average, and you know, I talked to lots of people that have worked places for 10, 15, 20 years, but on average, um, people are leaving jobs, you know, under a year and a half. While the other thing that's happened over the last 10 years is just that the, the way that people go to market, the way that companies need to generate revenue obviously changes all the time. And, it, and, you know, new technology, new tech stacks, new functions. The SDR function was actually a rather new function 10 years ago, uh, the sales development rep function. And now, you know, now it's not clear uh, where that role should sit, whether it should report to marketing or to sales. Uh, the definition of success for marketing was very different 10 years ago. Two years ago, I didn't know what intent data was. And, you know, I was trained that every every piece of content that a company created needed to live behind a landing page where you captured an email address now in 2020 the idea is that landing pages and email capture is over or at least in decline and much more fashionable is to put cookies on people's browsers and just follow them all over the internet and then you know when they're in market uh, my friend latin econet the chief marketing officer at six cents calls that the dark funnel so the point is that two things have happened our tenure has shrunk and we're in in the middle of COVID as we record this. So that's even more prominent now while the job becomes harder. And when I looked across at the communities that existed to or basically the, the, of the question of how I was going to navigate and negotiate my career over the next 10 to 20 to 50 to 25 years, I didn't have an answer for it. And I was making it up as I went along and there wasn't uh a clear answer for how to become a CRO. There wasn't a clear answer for how to negotiate for a CRO. There wasn't a clear answer for what a CRO should be paid or what you should negotiate for or whether you should just accept every deal as it's presented. So um, 
that, and, and I looked at like, well, how was I going to do that? And I didn't have an answer. And so what I started to do was put together a dinner club uh, for that met every quarter in New York that we called the New York Revenue Collective. And the point of it was just me and my friends sharing best practices and ideas and getting together to help each other and support each other. And the reason that, you know, and I, and I never thought that it would be a company at all. I just was doing it because I needed it. You know, the classic founder as the customer story. I just that needed works. somebody to talk to, you know? Yeah. And so, um, so I st- we started doing that. And then, you know, I hate to say one thing led to another, but one thing led to another. The thing that most surprised me was that I assumed that some kind of sales executive club existed already uh, in every city in the country or in the world. And the reality is, it didn't, it didn't exist. And so this idea of a platform and a community that really it took, the vision took shape over the course of the last couple of years, but a community where people can specifically go to manage and negotiate and navigate their career, not just be better. You know, I see a lot of communities talk about the profession of sales, you know, and and that's fine or the profession of marketing. I'm interested in those professions, obviously, because that's my background but I'm much more interested in the human beings behind those professions and revenue collective exists. And I can talk about how, why that's significant or because, because it does exist in contrast to other communities that are not focused in quite the same way on the individual human being. That's what, that's what our focus is. Our focus is we want to take every person that's a member of revenue collective and we want to help them achieve their potential. And however they define their potential, how, whatever that means to them, we want to put the tools and the answers to the test and the guidebook and the handbook and the playbook and whatever else you want to say. But we want to put the, the framework in place for people to more confidently navigate their careers so that you can achieve whatever it is that you feel is inside you that needs to be achieved. And that's, you know, um, so that's my background. That's my origin story. I, I appreciate it. And it makes a lot of sense. And when you speak through why Revenue Collective uh, has taken taken hold, it, it, it it's like common sense isn't common. So you have a role that's ever changing. You have a, a commercial landscape that's ever changing. Tenures are getting shorter. Environments are more difficult. Yet you don't have a support group that actually focuses on an individual's career. Now, I'm curious, in your opinion, at least, why was something like this or, yeah, why was something like this not created to date what are the uh, what is out there that revenue collective is in contrast to yeah it's a great question the reason i think there's probably a variety of different reasons the the perspective you know the 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 persona my persona um sits in contrast to a couple of things the first is that most of the time you know the celebrities in the startup ecosystem are not you and me, Scott. They're not. They uh, they're not the operators. There's two celebrities, two celebrity types, right? They are investors and founders, and those are the heroes. And I think that most communities grew up either in specific subservience or in indirect fealty to those to those uh, stewards to those personas. Right. So Vista Equity Partners, very famous private equity firm, uh, one of the best SaaS investors over the last 20 years. They do a CMO. They have a CMO community. What's the what's the underlying tension there? The underlying tension is that you have to be a CMO of a Vista company (laughs) Mm -hmm. and that the minute that you're not uh, the CMO of a Vista company, you are no longer of meaningful interest to them. Now, they might. They might present as if, but, but there's a conflict of interest because that is not about your career. That is about your ability to serve Vista's uh, limited partners, to be 
to be direct. Yeah. I remember when I was at Axial and I left Axial and Axial is a, is a portfolio company of first round capital, which is one of the you know famous early stage investors, seed stage investors. They, they aspire to be the first round of capital into a lot of companies all over the country and the world. And they have a very famous, you know, they have first round review. They, they put a lot of money into their platform, but they, they would call it a platform and their content. And I remember that I was a member of their community while I was at Axial. And when I left Axial, my username and password no longer worked and they were no longer interested in having me be part of their community. So thing number one is that communities have sprung up, but they have sprung up to serve ulterior motives. And there hasn't, and that is, so that's kind of one thing, which is that it's either that or the business model is conflicted. So what does that mean? That means that there are other communities, but most people maybe have some, they have some self-consciousness about charging. And then maybe they think that all communities should be free. I do not think that. Revenue Collective is a for-profit company that people pay dues to. So if I was going to do it for free and I wanted to make money, what would I need to do? Well, like they say, if, uh, you're not, if you're not paying money and you're wondering what the product is, the likelihood the is you're the product. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so all of these other communities, yes, they're free, but, the way that, but they all aspire to generate revenue. You know, all of the people that run these communities obviously are passionate about them and want to make money. So how do you make money in a free community? Well, you sell, first of all, you sell sponsorships. And the way that you sell sponsorships because it's free is that you have to promise the sponsor because they are your master, right? The people that pay the bills are ultimately your master. And so you have to promise to them that you're going to build as big an audience as possible. That's what they care about. So you're going to let in as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. And you, you don't have the, you don't have the luxury of cultivating or curating that community. You can't, I mean, look at LinkedIn, right? LinkedIn, the purpose of LinkedIn is that every person is on it. So what happens when every person is on it? Well, there's people that you respect that have meaningful insights and relevant insights, and they're drowned out by the people that have the time to post on there all the time and really work their personal brand. And so you go on LinkedIn and, you know, maybe you can learn something. And I actually don't have you know a problem with LinkedIn. I do learn things from LinkedIn, but I'm the product. I know that I'm the product. And um, I think that that's, that's another reason that Revenue Collective exists because we don't let everybody join, right? So we don't, we don't let investors join. We don't let founders join. We don't let executive search firms join. And we do let some consultants join, but most large-scale consulting firms we do not let join. And that means that when you join and when you pay your monthly dues or your annual dues, you know that it's a curated community and you know that you're not the product because you're paying. So that the product is what you're paying for, which is the value that we, that we aspire to deliver to you so that you'll be happy and continue to renew your membership. So the, the, the construction of the business model is also something that sits in contrast to most communities because most communities have a – there's a playbook on how to monetize communities. But inevitably, inevitably, they all turn into you becoming the product in one way or the other. And so I think that that's we, – we, we took a stance at the very beginning. We weren't going to allow certain people to join, and we were going to charge money so that we could maintain some degree of independence, even though we do have sponsor partners – their relationship with the community is very, very different than what I've seen from other places. And I think that that decision at the outset of just building a, and the last point that I'll make is that, again, because I just think business model and incentives drive so much behavior as you know, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger will tell us, um, our, our decision to not try and monetize every, every nook and cranny 
you know, of the, of the, of the platform, of the community. It's just, you pay a fat fee. We do as many things as we can. We raise that fee over time so that new people pay more, but we pour as much value into that bucket as we possibly can. And that is our only incentive as opposed to, Oh, we sent you a, a job listing and we're going to have a 10%, you know, uh, fee on the back end with the recruiter, or we're going to let you know that Salesforce is a sponsor. And every time somebody sales signs up for Salesforce, we're going to take 10%. There's no ulterior motive. There are no hidden incentives when you're a member of revenue collective. And again, I think that that helps over time separate us in addition to the values and vision that we have about your career. I, I like that model a lot, and I actually wanted to point out one other thing that even though you you did say that you mentioned or you mentioned rather that you have some sponsorship, the the sa- the sell to the sponsor is is premised on the existing business model that you have a targeted group that doesn't let everybody in that has a that has a hyper specific community and they know what they're getting into and there's no illusion that will ever change that's that's the core business principle right so even a sponsor going in knows that their audience is targeted and limited and yeah and that's important because they're never going to expect more from you in terms of widening your base to every investors founders whatever it may be that wasn't part of your core offering yeah when they that's first exactly signed that's 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 right and also because sponsors are 10 percent of our revenue not 100 yeah. percent, we can turn people away yeah and we can also say yeah you know uh we're not going to give you uh their email addresses and we're particularly not going to give you their email addresses if you're going to give those emails to an sdr to pound their inbox yeah. Uh, you know, for they signed up for one webinar and they get 22 emails every day from different people at the company. That's not we work hard to, to try and make that not the case. So the 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 community makes sense. The way it's set up makes a lot of sense. Now, let's speak about the people that are in it. So the, the commercial operators, CROs, VP sales. Um, let's first define what it is to be that individual in a company today outside of the, the limited tenure. What does a job description look like? Well, again, and, and we called it revenue um, for intentionally, not sales collector or marketing collective, because we include marketers, salespeople, okay. and customer success people, and even operations people that support those. And that's the point is also speaks okay. to my perspective on how, how is revenue generated. It's not just the sales team, right? It is the collective effort. It's really the collective effort of the whole company, but at least, and if we're going to be more specific, it includes the alignment and the interaction of the sales, marketing, customer success professionals that are working to generate, you know, revenue. So, within that world, if you're in charge of sales, you know, you are a, a person responsible for closing the deals. You're responsible for building the team, managing the sales team, managing different revenue channels potentially, including channel partnerships, in addition to, you know, inside sales and outside sales and field sales. If you're the CMO or the chief marketing officer, or you're the VP of marketing, mm-hmm. primarily in the modern world, you know, and I think, I think in many ways, marketing is more interested, more complicated and more difficult than sales because it, it covers so many different things. But if you're the CMO, your job is every day, again, the most recent modern parlance would be to, your job is to generate pipeline. I think that the, the actual job of a chief marketer is, is beyond that and is more nuanced because your job is also to elevate and support the brand. Now, the other people that have a big role on the brand is you know everybody else, including the sales team, the product team, and the customer success team, because the best way to build a great brand is to build something that people truly love. 
and then they will tell their friends. So that it's not just the marketer's responsibility, but it is the marketer's responsibility to take the feelings that people have about a brand and turn that into direct actionable language. Mm-hmm. But, um, and then the customer success people, you know, ultimately their job is to make sure that once you sign up a customer, they don't leave. And so, you know, across that journey of creating awareness, uh, attention and interest, you know, using that AIDA uh, framework, um, that's the marketer's job. And then decision and action, that is the salesperson's job. And then long-term longevity and, and, you know, and renewals, that's the customer success job. And those are all, those are all hard jobs anyway. But, the, but in today's world, so what is it about today's world? Well, uh, there are money is free in today's world. So what does that mean? That means that uh, the venture capital asset class has never had more money and has never had more funds. And I think I saw a chart over the weekend. So there are there are more investors because money is free, right? And if you if you are looking for returns, you have lots of equity capital to invest, and that means that you're going to invest it, and that means that there are going to be more companies that are seeking that capital, and that means that it's going to be more competitive, and that means that many, many, many more companies are going to be pursuing similar personas, similar business problems, similar solutions, and that means that your job is harder while all of this venture capital has gone into these companies, and venture capital, the definition of it is it seeks, you know, an extraordinary growth rate. It seeks extraordinary returns. Now, you know, one of the issues in my experience is that the returns are not venture capital doesn't describe an outcome. <laughs> really, it's it's just capital. So yeah. um but they all seek the same outcome. And they and they because, you know, to a hammer everything looks like a nail, they have money. They assume that the thing that creates great outcomes is money. And when they pay the money, they expect the great outcome. And what that means is that thousands and thousands and thousands of companies have have growth targets that are probably elevated and artificial relative to their actual potential, and they feel tremendous pressure to pursue those growth targets. And finally, the end of our story, that puts pressure on the sales and marketing talent. And of course, because there are so many more companies, the, the quality of the talent and the relative training of that talent is probably much more diffuse. Many more people inexperienced in these jobs, and they need support and they need help to be effective at those jobs. And that's again where Revenue Collective comes into play. And and I guess I the the point I was I was making with the the commercial operator or the revenue operator, um, and you you widened it out to sort of help me understand like the scope of, of who's in the actual collective. But I was curious about the point that you made earlier about the CRO VP sales that tenure keeps decreasing. Explain why that tenure keeps decreasing and how Revenue Collective seeks to to mitigate that doing the same. Because you didn't mention like customer success. You didn't mention those leaders are, you know, they're only sitting in a company for, what was it, 17 months. You didn't mention uh, marketing leaders or perhaps this is the case. I don't know. I want to put words in your mouth. But I'm curious as to, you know, I guess sales holds the bag. They're the ones that are getting hit the hardest with not hitting these uh, accelerated revenue targets or, or, or whatnot. Um, so how does Revenue Collective help them? Well, and to your point, you know, customer success is slightly longer, but marketers are very much in the bucket of the salespeople uh, with with declining average tenure. And I think that you mentioned, like, what are the reasons for that? So one of the reasons is the proliferation of capital and the number of companies and the quality of talent being spread across a much greater number of companies. That's probably one reason. The other reason is that there is a point of view that um, people are stage specific. Right, and that um, you are the leader for the zero to ten million 
range of the company, but we're going to need somebody different for 10 to 30 million. And we're going to need somebody other than that for 30 to 100. And I think that there's a lot of, there's a, there's negative feedback loop that's in play where, um, sales and marketing people are viewed as interchangeable. We are treated interchangeably, thus we act interchangeably. And I think all of this is perpetuating itself. So Revenue Collective seeks to address that in, in three primary ways. The first is we want to help people get better at their job so that they can stay longer. <laughs> and I think one of the things we want to do is market that we make better, uh, people better at their job so that the companies have more confidence that, that any given leader whoever she or he may be, can scale to a specific revenue range. Mm -hmm. And we do that by providing access to a, a com the community itself, which provides real-time insights. You know, you can go ask a question and get 15 people that have been there, done that, to answer it quickly. So we want to help you get better at your job. And we take all of these interactions that people have and we create content from it. So we create workbooks and playbooks and we make them instantly accessible. We uh, create webinars. We and, and over time, we really want to create I don't know if we'll call it this because there's so many people calling things that, but something like a Revenue Collective University. But basically, when you become a Revenue Collective member, you have the chaos of just meeting all of the people and getting to know people and building those intimacy and those relationships, but also that from all of those people and their insights, we've built structured programs so that you can sign up for the CRO program or for the VP sales program. So, you know, that's part of what we want to do. Now, the second thing we want to do is we want to help you find a job. Hey, it's Scott here. I just want to take a second to thank the sponsor of our show, Teachable. What is Teachable? Well, let me start with this. If 2020 has taught us anything, it's that nothing is for sure. Nothing is a guarantee. Everything was flipped on its head, including our job security. A lot of people realized that brick and mortar had to move online, had to move digital. And those jobs that we've had for 20 plus years weren't so secure. So what do we do? How do you future proof? Well, you start your own thing. You build your own business. It doesn't have to be completely replacing your nine to five. It could just be a side hustle. But you are finding ways to productize yourself, your knowledge, and things that you can sell to people that can benefit them that will allow you to bring in multiple streams of revenue and income. So how do we do that? Well, Teachable is the platform that allows you to productize and monetize your knowledge. It allows independent entrepreneurs and creators to build and sell fully customizable online courses and services. You are taking what you know, you are building courses, you're using Teachable, and you are monetizing your years of experience. There are over 100,000 instructors and creators who have transformed their knowledge into world-class courses, and Teachable has paid out over $500 million. To help get you started as a special offer for everybody who's listening to the podcast today, visit teachable.com backslash success and enter your email for a free seven-step guide walking you through the exact steps you can take to create your own online school and start making money based on what you already know. That's teachable.com backslash success. Enter your email for a free checklist to help get your online school started. Uh, if, if, it, if we can't help you get better or, or if we've gotten you as far as we can go, yeah. then the other thing we need is we need to be the nexus. We need to be the, the central clearinghouse for every executive go-to-market position, or at least we need to aspire to be that, so that you always feel like you can find a job. And that's where our business model is very, very important, as I mentioned. Why? Because we don't 
need, seek, want to take referral fees from recruiters. We don't want to be a recruiter. The number one thing someone will tell you if you start a community is you should start a recruiting firm. I'm never going to start a recruiting firm. I have absolutely no interest in starting a recruiting firm. Um, I don't like transactional revenue. I like recurring revenue. Um, and so there's a huge benefit to that. What is the benefit? We can work with every recruiting firm because we have no interest in their economics. We actually want to help them. We think that if we help people connect to great recruiters and great hiring managers and they find jobs, they're just more likely to renew their membership. And if we're leaving a little bit of money on the table, that's great. We're happy to do that because we want to play for a much longer term. So we want to help you get better at your job. We want, we want to help you find a new job if you need to. And the final piece of it is we want to arm you with the right information and insights so that you can negotiate more effectively for that job. Because I personally, you know, I, I'm impatient and, uh, and I get bored easily and maybe Maybe the right tenure for me is nine months. <laughs> Maybe yeah. the muse had it right. That's I don't have a point of view. It's, this isn't a, you know, there's no there's no like bad guy, good guy. This isn't this isn't a moral argument. This is an argument that if we're all going to work places a year and a half, then the deal that is presented to us needs to change, because it because it has become unfairly skewed to the company, uh, or again, use of the word fair is a little. Uh, a little ten tenuous, but you know, I, I want to renegotiate, right? I want to renegotiate. If I'm going to work somewhere a year and a half and I'm going to help them get from point A to point B, which is incredibly valuable, then you're going to have to pay me differently. And, uh, and that's okay. So let's figure that out. And so there's a number of ways that we coach people so that they I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. 
card, it's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information, but Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch U.S.-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Thank you so much indeed for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed 
survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. They can have more information and more confidence going into negotiations uh, to anticipate some of these, these challenges. That was going to be, uh, I guess, my next question because you have... I, you know, coming from coming from a sales and marketing background in my career, I align with a lot of the things that you're saying. But when you look at the reality, you see these interchangeable roles where you see these uh, VP sales getting getting the marketing uh, department added on to their, you know, their list of things and roles and responsibilities. And the, the commercial environment is not synced up with, I would say, the, the commercial environment at large, I don't think is synced up with what you're preaching within Revenue Collective. So when you have these two conflicting forces where you have perhaps founders that are a little bit outdated and they, and they aren't working with perhaps the best venture capital firm that's giving them the right advice on who to hire, who to look for, how do, how do you navigate that workforce? How do you navigate which companies to work for? What are the red flags that you should look for uh, when you go take on your next role or your next job? to make sure that it aligns with the way that a company should be hiring and managing and onboarding and setting their, their executives up for success? Well, there's, there's a lot of questions in that. In that, I know there's a ton. I was just thinking through, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I do too. Uh, I think, so there's a couple pieces. The first thing is, you know, and I do part of what we offer our members is coaching calls. You know, so I was on one yesterday, which was a Sunday talking to a member and she was a consultant that was interviewing. She'd been a consultant for a really long time and hadn't taken on a full-time role. So we're kind of going through things. And the first thing is, you know, before we talk about negotiation or red flags, we have to understand the labor market mm-hmm. because if, uh, if there's no jobs and you need to pay your mortgage or pay your rent or put your kids through private school, then uh, some of what I'm about to say is less relevant because yeah. the first things first, you got to take care of yourself and leverage changes. If it was the employment market nine months ago, we would have probably more leverage. Uh, now the, the VC funding environment right now is actually quite hot, but the point is I can't speak to your personal circumstance and depending on how many choices you have and how much leverage you have, that'll determine the extent to which you use my advice. Now, the second part of it is that again, there's, there are, you know, I, it's, it's less about kind of red flags, although I can give you a couple red flags. I mean, if they won't share information with you and you're an executive, and really if you're an employee and the company won't share information with you, what kind of information? What was the most, what was the most recent funding round? What did it value of the company at? How many shares are outstanding? What's the price per share? You know, has anybody sold secondary? Meaning has anybody taken money off the table in the, in the moments mean, leading up to joining the company? What's, let me see your previous board decks. Have you hit the number? What was the number? Are you giving me the plan or do I have to, uh, you know, I mean, again, red flag is we've set a growth target of X, Scott, uh, you're obligated to hit X when you join. And if you don't hit X by nine months from now, you're fired is obviously a red flag since you didn't have any opportunity to weigh in and to build that plan yourself. So there's a number of ways that people might run an interview process. I would also say that, frankly, anybody that's pushing speed, 
you know, speed in, a, in an executive interview process, I think is a red flag, right? These, these are supposed to be, you're, you're trying to work there for longer than 18 months, right? This is supposed to be some, if it's not a, it's not a great marriage, it's not going to last 20 years, but you know, we don't want it to be a two year marriage. We want it to be, want it to last a while, at least have a kid or two. So, um, and so, so I think if people are rushing the interview process, that's a big problem. And, and of course people are obligated to do their own due diligence, but the, the, the main things that I would say are in terms of like, how are we trying to change this? How are we trying to change the structure um, is really around the idea is you go to work for a startup and you get paid probably below market uh, relative to a big enterprise company in cash. But that's because you get above market uh, in terms of the equity opportunity. And, you know, the reason that many of us work at startups is is because we've all read about the person that worked at Slack or Facebook or Google and even like some of the most famous investors are just, they were just early employees at yeah. Facebook and Google. Uh, so we all, that's why we join startups. That's why we join these early stage companies for the equity opportunity. Okay. Well, the equity framework uh, doesn't make a lot of sense given a couple of things, how long it takes the company to go public, how long you are expected to work there, all related to the structure of the equity that they issue you, which is a long way of saying that most people get equity, which vests over a four year, these are options, they're granted options over a four year period, let alone the one year cliff, which we can talk about. But so if you're only working somewhere a year and a half, and a meaningful part of your compensation is intended to become real over four years, there's an obvious disconnect there. It's just very clear, year and a half to four years. The other part of it is, the reason that uh, options are on a four-year vest is because uh, companies typically in you know, the olden days uh, took four years to go public because they could go public at much smaller sizes because of the regulatory requirements around filing and becoming a public company were less. So um, now they take much longer. So what happens is they take longer where more investors come in, they raise more money, you get diluted more. If you're only going to work there a year and a half, it means that the, the event, the, the place where you can turn this equity, which is a meaningful part of why you're working at a startup in the first place, the place where you can turn that equity into cash, which is the point of all finance, turn it into cash, uh, is way down the road when probably you won't be there and you will have much less influence in terms of who gets it, how it gets it, and et cetera, et cetera. So, all of this is a long-winded way of saying that let's rethink this. Let's rethink it. Uh, let's say maybe you keep the equity. Maybe you don't work for equity, but maybe you work for milestone-based cash bonuses that function very similarly to equity. If I'm going to take a company, this is a, my favorite, you know, one of my favorite comparisons, and sorry for being long-winded, but if yeah, I'm going to take a company from $2 million in annual recurring revenue, $2 million in revenue to $10 million in revenue, which could take about a year and a half, right? That's, that's a common journey for an early stage um, VP sales, VP marketing. Well, what are you doing between two and 10? $2 million is not, yes, it's a company, I get it, but it's not really a company. And what do I mean by that? The, the investors are, the reason that you pay more money at later stages is because you've removed risk from the business model. At $2 million, there's still a tremendous amount of risk. A tremendous amount of risk, not just about whether the market is truly there, but about whether the way you've designed your company is the right way to do it to attach that market. So you come in at $2 million. Now, what is $10 million? $10 million, you have removed a tremendous amount of risk. 
a tremendous companies that have $10 million in revenue can typically, unless they're completely mismanaged, find some path to profitability, especially if they're software companies, right? $10 million, that's a hard company to kill. That's pretty hard. You know, 10 million is a lot of money. Now, it may not seem like that if we're all working at, you know, Salesforce and they're doing billions in revenue, but that's the truth of the matter. So you've taken something, you've been part of the team that's taken something from high risk, really uncertain to we've removed, now we're just trying to figure out how much is it going to be worth, but we know it's going to be a company, that two to 10 journey. Well, um, if you were there a year and a half, you know, again, a small portion of your options invested, uh, you might have raised money at a massive financing round that um, didn't give you the opportunity to sell anything and put the company so far over its skis in terms of valuation. So instead of, uh, and, you, and you might just get fired, by the way, because the two to 10 person is likely going to be different than the 10 to 30 person. Mm-hmm. So instead of this structure where you've contributed a massive amount of value and have not really received anything commensurate in return, what if at the moment that you hit 10 million in revenue or 8 million in revenue, you get a $250,000 cash bonus? Instead of the points of equity, which are probably not going to be as meaningful anyway, or maybe you get half the equity, what if um, you have an opportunity to sell your equity earlier and take money off the table uh, so, that, so that at least you can realize some of the gains? Or what if you had the opportunity to not have to exercise your equity 90 days after leaving the company? All of these are very specific startup, you know, uh, uh, practices. But again, I just think that they're outdated. And so I think that, you know, what people need to do is arm themselves with information and then confidence, because that's the other part of it. I think a lot of sales and marketing people, you know, we, we don't deal with investors all the time and we're not founders. And so we haven't had to set up a cap table and do all of the things. Mm-hmm. And we're just much more comfortable arguing or negotiating about cash. But I do think that the other part of it is if we can give people the right information and the right confidence to more confidently discuss equity, they can have the confidence to realize that all of this is negotiable. There's nothing that's not negotiable and that they can change it if they have the confidence to change it. And we're seeing that with Revenue Collective. The final piece I would say is uh, severance. Again, like the last part of compensation and the thing that I just, I really strongly feel like every executive should be arguing and negotiating very forcefully for severance, pre-negotiated severance. So that, again, I don't, what I want is, (laughs) I don't mind working somewhere a year and a half. I don't, you know, it's okay if you fire me after 10 months, but it's much better if I've pre-negotiated 12 months of severance. That makes that decision much more expensive for you. And that makes it, that means that you can't, you've got to be, it's got to be meaningful. You've got to think about it. And that's okay. You should think about it. You should think about it before you hire me. You, you shouldn't, it's not, we are not interchangeable and I'm not coin operated. And if you want to treat me like that, I'm going to make it much more expensive for you to treat me like that so that maybe you can think about it a little bit. So I like it a lot. And I think that, you know, I was actually going to bring up a point that you, you just ended up going and, and touching on anyways, but a lot of sale or I keep saying sales because it's my background. A lot of individuals, executives who perhaps haven't been as tenured, you know, like, I don't know, not, not put an age on it, but younger, they wouldn't have had this experience before. They don't know what they can and cannot negotiate. They don't understand all the nuances of all these different arrangements. Um, even negotiating severance is something that they may not feel comfortable doing unless it's been presented in roles before. And if you think if they're coming from working in a company for 10 years, and they moved up and now they want to pivot into startup land. 
um, this will be their first foray into having the ability to negotiate with with literally quite literally the founder um, at that stage. So I'm, I'm assuming now that you, you know, you're speaking through it, these are all things that they can learn from the from from revenue collected from the community. These are all people that can support them. I'm, I don't know if there's like legal or whatnot in the community, but I'm sure there's some people that have tons of experience with this that on your own. This is scary as hell to go yep. in and, and negotiate. Exactly right. And it's, yeah. and again, it speaks to uh, the business model again, because we have, we don't sell. Now people do get their dues expense, but we don't sell to the company. We sell to the individual. The individual goes back to their you know hiring manager, their CEO, but that's all intentional because we want to be, there is no other place in my experience where you can get these questions answered. There's many, many places to figure out who should SDRs report to, or you know how should we set up the comp plan? Should it be meetings set or meetings held? But where do you go to figure out, you know, is this the right amount of money? I'm actually pretty scared. They've offered this to me. Does this sound fair to you? And again, my call yesterday, because I do these calls, you know, every day with members. It, the woman, does this sound fair? I said, no, it doesn't. It's not fair. <laughs> it's not right. Yeah. And there's, there hasn't been, that's what you want. You know, that's the thing that's helpful. That's the thing that'll help you sleep at night is knowing that there's a group of people that are not subservient to investors. I'm not trying to please first round capital um, or, or Vista equity partners. I, I don't have anything against them, but I, I don't exist to please them. I exist to please the people that work for them. They're my members. So yes, those are questions that can be answered. And again, I think that the biggest thing that surprises people is, is how no matter what they say, I don't care what they say, I don't care what the general counsel says or what the founder says, well, this is the equity package that we issue all of our employees and we would never change it for just one person. Okay, well maybe you should change it for all of the employees then. <laughs> or at least you should have classes and you should have an executive class equity package and a non-executive class equity package. But these things are changeable and, and you can change them. And I'll give you a specific example. I was working at Axial and I didn't know I, I was in that, that position that you're talking about. I was an early VP. I didn't know what to ask for. And um, all of a sudden, the CFO one day comes and he puts together, he puts a piece of paper in front of me that is a, a paperwork to sign that is an amendment to their equity stock option plan that gives me, as the option holder, full uh, a double trigger, full acceleration. So double trigger, full acceleration is you have options that are unvested. The company is sold. That's the first trigger. And then something happens to you like you're fired. That's the second trigger. So let's say a big company like Salesforce buys your sales engagement company. They, um, that, that happens. And then they say, you know what, we don't need a VP of sales, uh, but you can be senior director of field for the Toronto region. And you say, well, that's not really the job I had. I used to be SVP of global sales. They say, sorry, if you don't want that job, then you don't work here anymore. Those would be the two triggers. Upon that, your unvested equity accelerates so that you can get the full benefit, the full realization of the value of that acquisition. All right, so that's a term um, that's fairly common. I hadn't heard of it. Somebody put a piece of paper in front of me to sign to give me that right. How did that happen? That's because we were interviewing a VP of marketing and she said, I'm not gonna join the company unless there's double trigger full acceleration. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, then we would have to do that for all the executives. And she said, then do it for all the executives. And guess what? <laughs> all of the executives got yeah. the term. So, you know, I just, if anybody's out there listening or I know that it feels uh, scary and it should. And again, remember all of this against my first caveat, which is if you don't have leverage, then you don't have leverage. But if you do have leverage, you should at least know what's possible and you should, you should know that things can be changed. If they want you bad enough, things can be changed. 
I like that a lot. Um, it's, it's refreshing uh, because uh, there's a lot of people that come on the show that speak about, um, like you mentioned, like strategy on how to do this better, how to do that better. But I don't think I've ever spoken to somebody on how to negotiate your professional. It's, it's something that you're right. I've never heard of it before. I've never heard of a group that does this at all. So it's, you know, hats off to you for doing this and hopefully it continues to grow. I, I think that you see some, like you see Revenue Collective all over LinkedIn. So it's obviously, you have 3,000 members, obviously doing something. So hopefully, you know, when, when, when COVID is maybe a little bit decided and people do have a little bit more leverage, that's when they can start taking advantage of some of these things. If not just keeping it top of mind right now, right? As they go into potentially new, new work environments, like hopefully the economy is turning around a bit. I know a lot of people were laid off. So this is when they have to exercise that, right? If they, if they want to go in and negotiate all these, all these different options you mentioned. Um, now, that being said, uh, I, want to, I want to just ask you some questions based on your career, your experience, just like personal insight that I like to draw out from somebody who's done so much over their career. Before I pivot, is there anything that I didn't ask about uh, Revenue Collective that I should have asked? No, no. Uh, you know, I think uh, I've... If folks are intrigued or interested or you want to learn more, uh, you can go to revenuecollective.com. There's an application process. You click on apply now. We've got communities and chapters. It is COVID, so you know it's a digital first community. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've got people everywhere, everywhere in the world. We've got you know we just signed our chapter heads for Sydney, Australia, uh, and they're going to cover Melbourne and Perth for now in Brisbane, uh, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth and Birmingham, Alabama. And, uh, you know, we've got Manchester, UK, Stockholm, Sweden. So, you know, anywhere you are in the world, if you want to become a member, we'd, we'd love to talk to you. Very good. Um, now, in terms of the evolution of, of these uh, executive roles within organizations, it's something that you're understanding all the time. You're looking for new ways to improve uh, how an executive can transition and negotiate into a new role, as well as just other ancillary topics that will help them be successful in their role. What, what are you curious about or what are you investigating in the in the world of um, leadership? Uh, what are people looking to incorporate, or what should they? What should people uh, focus on bringing into their own persona as a leader that can help them accelerate in their role right now? Something that isn't as common. Well, I don't. Um, here's here's one thought. This is something that I've just been thinking about a lot. I think that people need to be as invested in their career as a professional athlete would be invested in their career. That is something I would share with people. Professional athlete reviews game film. Professional athlete has a nutritionist. They have a weights trainer. They have people that help them get better at each facet. I don't see enough people, and this is speaking my book, so there's an obvious conflict here, but I don't see enough people making investments in their career. Besides a community like Revenue Collective, because I, I honestly don't, you need to be part of something. You need to have some kind of mentorship or some kind of group where you can go, and it doesn't have to be my group, but you, ha- you need some group where you can go and ask people that you trust and respect uh, how to do something, what to do, what they think about something that you haven't experienced before. But the other part of it is that I... Uh, I think more people should investigate uh, coaching, hiring coaches. Uh, it's something, it's just internalizing 
the concept that there is an advocate that only speaks for you, that doesn't come from your company, that you pay for out of pocket, that helps you get better as an individual, and that helps you address perhaps things that are longstanding challenges or impediments to your personal growth and development. And I specifically would contrast that with a therapist. I don't think that, I don't think, um, you know, mental health is incredibly important. And so it's not about, it's, this is just for me personally, but for me personally, I've tried both therapy and working with a coach and I've gotten practical, actionable, like my life has changed the more I've worked with a really good coach and I didn't get a lot of benefit from, from uh, you know, traditional talk therapy. So, you know, I think as people are, we're in a volatile world and we know that. And you need to arm yourself with personal resources. This is like a rant, very random anecdote, but I don't believe that I don't want the company to buy my computer. If I were to ever work for somebody again, which I, you know, I hope not to, but if I ever work for somebody again, they're not buying my computer and I'm not asking them to. I don't, I don't want you to own my computer. You don't get to, I bring, I'm like a free agent athlete. Mm-hmm. I bring a coach. I bring a graphic designer, by the way. If you're a leader out there and you don't have access to your own personal contract freelance graphic designer so that you can put together your own presentations and they look good, it's, a, it's, a, it's enough with like the, the terrible, like your advertising, particularly more experienced people, sometimes you're advertising your age when you put together decks that just look like absolute dog shit and you're like <laughs> going into a final round interview, you just look like grandpa or grandma, yeah. don't wanna do that. So you need to surround yourself with an arsenal of resources that are dedicated to you evolving as a human being, not about the companies subsidizing all of this for you. Because again, if we're all gonna work places a year and a half, it's just like a hockey player or a football player or a baseball player. So they all have their own weights trainer, they all have their own coach, they all have their own hitting instructor. We all, as leaders, we need to do that. We need to arm ourselves, and we are, we are fully formed, autonomous executives that can parachute into a company. If they want to treat us transactionally, that's fine, and we will have the ongoing resources necessary to help us navigate this difficult environment. And again, that's sort of the point of Revenue Collective. Do you find that, do you find that executives are doing that more often, creating uh, this, this almost this machine that supports them when they go into different, because that's outside of what I think most people think of when they apply for a job. They think, I don't want to spend my money on this. I don't want to spend, my, this is, you know, I'll just expense it. Oh, this is part of the company. They should be paying for this. They should be paying for my coaching, my executive training. Do you find that more executives are just taking that initiative on their own to take control of their own career? I hope so. I hope so. They, I, <laughs> you just, you got to understand, I don't care what the person says about confidentiality. The person that's paying the bills is the boss. And you, I, I do think that executives need to be a little bit more long. You need to invest in yourself. It needs to be an investment. You need to be prepared to spend your own money on getting better. And if, and if you're just like, well, I, I won't do that unless I can expense it. You're just shortchanging yourself. You know, you, you just have to have a bigger picture view of the world. This is not about every single time you do something, sending in the receipt to get it expensed. Mm-hmm. This is about you building a career in a world that is not going to help you unless you help yourself. That's very powerful. That's a, it's a, it's a very different view of career than what I think a lot of people expect. But well, I think it's, I think it's, um, I think it's an effective view of career. I think it's, you know, I see a lot of people that try and build, you know, we talk about building a brand. 
I think that building a brand is a lot more than just a couple posts on, on social media. I think that what you're speaking about is your brand extends far deeper and now you have your own little team working for you, basically, yeah. essentially. We're all gonna, I just, you know, again, some of the 18 month thing isn't, you know, nobody's at fault, there's no enemy. This is the yeah. way the world is now, you know, we're all impatient, we all want instant results and if that's gonna be the way the world is, then we need to prepare ourselves for it. Yeah. Um, and, and to be quite honest, if you, if you aren't transitioning from jobs every 18 months or, if, or e even if you are and you're better protecting yourself, the, the expenses will pay for themselves. So exactly. It's, 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 a, it's it negates the, the cost. Um, okay. Uh, one, just a, two, more, two more quick questions. Um, this one's a little simple, but I still like to understand your point of view. What would be one lesson across your entire career uh, that you would tell your younger self? I, um, the biggest one is, you know, I always say the person that takes their life seriously the soonest is the person that will win. I have, I could probably think of a more pithy way of saying that or articulating it, but like <laughs> I, um, the problem with, um, me as a human being and, you know, the, to the point of like the vision of revenue collective, unlock your potential, because for most of my life, I felt like I had potential that was not being exercised. And that is because I had a lot of early success uh, as a very young person in school. And I got used to this idea that success came easily and I could do with a moderate amount of effort, I could achieve exceptional results. And the real world has a way of slapping you in the face when you think about that. And I just think I wished I'd started running sooner. <laughs> I wish that I'd worked harder. I wish that I had spent less than I made sooner and that I'd learned. But, you know, that's just there's, I, I could tell that to my younger self. I don't know if my younger self would have believed it, you know, because the way that you learn things is the hard way, which is through experience. But I fundamentally believe that I fundamentally believe that if I had just worked, if I had been more diligent, taken things more seriously, focused more on hard work as early as possible, you know, I would have achieved great things. But the only way I know that is through what I've experienced. So mm -hmm. I don't even know if it makes sense sometimes to say those things. No, but, but it may not make sense to, to your younger self, you know, when you, when, when you were younger, but if somebody's listening, hopefully, yeah. Hopefully they take that to heart. That's all you can. That's all you can hope. And then they don't have to experience. Experience is the the ultimate teacher. But if they can shortcut some of that experience with a little bit of self awareness and aligning with people that have done it before, that yeah, that no, you're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah, that helps too. Um, and then last question before I get uh, some websites and socials from you, um, what does success mean to you? I, I wish, you know, the thing about cliches is that they're true. <laughs> so, yeah. um, that's why they're cliches for me, for me, I am, I mean, success is realizing the potential of this opportunity and it is also correspondingly because I, you know, they talk about like, um, being rich versus being wealthy or, um, you know, I, I want to be as free and as independent from the constraints of, of my, you know, of traditional society as possible. 
And that would be success. Success is controlling your own time and controlling your own day. And that's why, and, and having fun doing it. And that's what I'm doing right now. You know, running your own company, um, especially when there's not investors. Now, there's probably a downside to that, but, but there's a lot of upside. And the upside is I control my day. I decide what happens. And it is, you know, the, it is besides, you know, the people I love in my life, the most important thing to me. And it's because I have the independence and autonomy to make my own decisions. And so that for me is what success truly is. Very well said. Um, and most importantly, where do people connect with you? Where do people go find out more about the revenue collective? Um, give me some links that we can go check out. Sure. As I mentioned, uh, so first, if you want to email me, you can, uh, Sam at revenuecollective.com. Maybe mention that uh, you heard me on the podcast. That would help. Uh, if you want to check out Revenue Collective, revenuecollective.com. Uh, if you want to apply, click apply now. We have a program for executives and we have a program for associates. So people that are on their way up that are not yet at the executive level. Uh, you can find us on LinkedIn as well. LinkedIn.com forward slash the word in forward slash Sam F. Jacobs. Those are the, those are the big ones. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it each with its own cost and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information, but Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone, and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com 
Com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch U.S.-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professional to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text SUCCESS, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Thank you so much indeed for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. 
Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 